All right, y'all still awake out there? Good, great. I'm gonna call you out. I'm, I'm gonna watch you. I didn't see you. Merciless. So I'm Tim. I'm one of the pastors here. Pastor Josh sends his greetings. Uh, he's down in Martinsburg this morning. I believe Sarah's with him. And he doesn't get to go to Martinsburg as much as he wants, but there's such a tight relationship there between the sending church and between us, the church at Martinsburg and Hagerstown Church. And today's just another opportunity to say thanks for sending us and continuing to support us even years after you've sent us. Continue to be a resource and a sounding board. Um, so it's kind of like a family reunion. So he sends his thanks. And if you are new with us this morning, we typically preach through books of the Bible and we just open up the book and let it unfold and see what we can learn from it. And we've been doing that with the gospel according to Mark for I think 27 years, something like that. We've been in here for a while and we're only in chapter nine. So we're hoping to pick it up a little bit. We're covering 15 like whole Bible verses today. So that's a good thing. And so I won't waste any more of your time. Let's go to Mark chapter nine, verse 14 through 29. The title of the message today is a quote from one of the characters in this story. The title of the message is Help My Unbelief. Help My Unbelief. And so there's one man that by God's grace says those words, and you'll see the more that we read that probably pretty much everyone except for Jesus in the passage should be saying those words, and so should we. So as we get started this morning, I want to draw some contrast for you to help you understand what we're doing and where we're going. So last week, we were on the mountaintop. This week, we are in a new place. And so I just want to get our minds thinking about mountains. Like, I don't know about you, but it's warming up. The weather's nicer. You want to be outside. You want to actually not be like translucent. You want to get a little bit of a tan going on. You got a travel bug. There's this song that just came out and it's just called, I need to go somewhere, just anywhere. Like I want to get up and I want to get out and I want to go just somewhere different. And so people are getting the vacation bug and, and I'm not, I'm, I'm one of them. I just want to change the scenery. So question, when, if money is no object, time off is no object, would you rather go to the beach or would you rather go to the mountains? Yeah? Mountains. Okay, okay, okay. I'm, sup- I'm hearing a lot of beach stuff like that. And I mean, I'm, I would imagine that there'd be a lot of beach people here because we live in the mountains, right? So you want what you don't got. And so you end up going to the beach because you got the AT in your backyard. And so for me, I think I'm kind of a reverse of that. Uh, I grew up in Florida and I grew like, I grew up like as far as you could geographically get from a beach, like right in the middle of the state. And I was like an hour and 10 minutes from the Atlantic and then like an hour or 20 from the Gulf. And so the beach was always there. It's like, I don't know, I'm bored. You want to get in the car to the beach? So now I'm a mountain guy. I've got the mountain beard. I've got the whole like, I don't know. I'm like the brawny man this morning. Like I just, I like mountains. That's, that's just, I don't know. That's what I've turned into. And so it's great that I live here because, man, isn't it beautiful being around these mountains? I can get up and I can look out my window and through some power lines, through some houses, I can see South Mountain and I can see the ridge. And it's a wonderful thing to wake up to in the morning. And, you know, I was thinking about just how beautiful it is along I-70. 
going up and over the mountain when it's not rush hour and just looking at the scenery and just taking it all in. And then I was thinking, you know, I-70 itself is a great opportunity to just see scenery. I don't know about you, but like when you come off 695 and you get on to 70 and 70 is just beginning and it says like, you know, Hagerstown is this far and Denver is this far and Cove Fort, Utah is like 2,200 miles away. Like that sign just makes me want to like, you know, just cancel my plans and just buy a bunch of gas and just go. So it's just beautiful if you would trace the route. So you'd go over South Mountain, you'd see Sidling Hill off in the distance. That's 68, right? Going through Sidling Hill, just blasting right through the mountain. So kick butt, just like boom, like blowing the mountain up. And then you keep heading west, you keep heading west, and then all of a sudden, you can see the front range of the Rocky Mountains. Just beautiful, just protruding out of the earth. And Anthony tells me that you can see it from like, what, Kansas? You can see it from hours and hours away on a clear day, I guess, and there's nothing in the way because it's Kansas. And just the majesty and the beauty of that stuff that you're heading toward. This weekend, uh, Colorado, Wyoming, they got this historic amount of snowfall and people can't go anywhere, people can't do anything. Uh, and some of y'all know what it's like to be caught in 70 west of Denver in a whiteout condition. It's like awe-inspiring if you're home. <laughs> and then it's like terrifying if you're not home. Uh, so the point is, mountains really captivate us. They capture our attention. Beautiful things, memorable things happen on the mountaintop. And today we find ourselves and we find the disciples and we find Jesus coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration and seeing a scene in the valley that is not exactly as beautiful, not exactly as memorable. It's darker, this scene. It's more broken. It's overwhelming to the people in it and the people watching just the brokenness happening as they come down from the mountain and they observe humanity taking place. But isn't it good to know that God is powerfully with us on the mountaintop and in the valley at the same time? Amen? Have y'all ever experienced the faithfulness of God in the valley when he's far away, when he doesn't feel present, when his power doesn't seem accessible? He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. That's part of what we'll see today. So John MacArthur helps us contrast last week and this week in a way that I think kind of helps. Because when you set this mountaintop experience and this valley experience next to one another, you can really get a sense for the condition that the world is in and what God wants. So listen to these here. John MacArthur says that the transfiguration happens on a mountain. And this broken scene we're about to take see happens in the valley. And the transfiguration there is glory, and here there's suffering. In the transfiguration, God dominates the scene, and here Satan dominates the scene. Last week, the Heavenly Father was pleased with his son, and in this incident, we see an earthly father tortured by his son's condition. Last week, you see fallen men in holy wonder of what they're observing, and this week, we see a fallen son in unholy horror, just twisted 
by the fallenness and the brokenness of the world. It's a dramatic scene we're about to read, one of the most dramatic in the whole New Testament. And the disciples find themselves in over their heads, and Jesus was not there to take care of it for them. And Jesus uses all of it to teach the disciples and us a lesson on dealing with doubt and the unparalleled power of faith. Here's where the rubber hits the road. How are we supposed to handle the challenges that beat us and just pound on the door in a Genesis 3 world when Jesus isn't physically here to bail us out? When we don't have the instant feedback like the disciples had with him right there in the middle of them? How do we tap into the presence of Jesus when it's not obvious? That's what this passage is about. So here's the main point. Here's the, if you fall asleep and you don't get anything else point. Even weak faith holds up when it's rooted in Jesus. Even weak faith holds up when it's rooted in Jesus. So three points. Number one, we find folks in this passage that are helpless without Jesus. Two, we see power being displayed in the midst of some weakness happening. And number three, we're going to see that it's not about the strength of our faith, but it's about the source of our faith. So that's what we're going to see from the Lord. And so sometimes we would go through and we would read the whole passage before we, it's like one person amen section. She's like ad-libbing. It's great. So normally we would read like the whole thing and then we would break it down little by little. But today it's so dramatic and it's so kind of like captivating, I think. We're just going to take it bit by bit and we're just going to let the scene unfold in front of us. There are so many like what kind of moments that we'd rather just like read it bit by bit. So let's jump in here. Number one, helpless without Jesus. So let's start in verse 14. It says, and when they, which is Jesus, Peter, James, John, when they came down from the mountain and saw the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and the scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So here you see Jesus, Peter, James, John, coming down from literally a heavenly experience and walking onto something that's like got some tension, kind of uncomfortable, like things are building up around here. So the nine remaining disciples, they didn't go up on the mountain for the transfiguration. They stayed down in the valley and people were there. So they continued to minister because they had opportunity and they'd run into a situation that was challenging to them in a couple ways. So it became evident to them that they were ministering without Jesus in more ways than one. Even though he wasn't physically there, there was another sense in which they were ministering without Jesus. And it was causing them to hit some tension. It was causing them to experience a lack of power. So the crowds had come for Jesus. They came for healing. They came for authoritative teaching. They came to see what was up because Jesus wasn't like anybody else that they had encountered. But then they just got the disciples and it wasn't happening. The miracles weren't there. The power didn't seem to be displayed. And the tension was mounting. The crowd was growing frustrated and the scribes were using it as an opportunity to argue 
about whether what Jesus and the disciples was doing was even authentic. So we see that in the next verse there. They ran up to him, they greeted him, and he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? So we see when Jesus shows up, the crowd who had become more and more and more tense because their expectations weren't being met, because their needs weren't being met, they were getting hungry, they were thinking about the next thing, they were saying, man, I guess I'm going to have to go somewhere else for this really important thing. But when Jesus shows up, everyone takes a deep breath. They ran to him because they had faith that he could fix this situation. And that's a theme that we're going to see a couple times this morning. Jesus, run to this unfixable situation and make it right. Because I can't, and I'm being disappointed by everyone else around me. So Jesus, would you run to this? Jesus, would you make this right? Jesus, would you help me? Because I can't find it anywhere else. So the crowds were relieved when Jesus showed up. But the disciples and the scribes were found speechless. So 16, he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Verse 17 says, and someone from the crowd answered him. Well, okay. He wasn't talking to the crowd, was he? He was talking to the scribes and the disciples and they were having some sort of a, um, how do you say, intense conversation about something because there, there was a hole in the armor of the disciples and the scribes wanted to discredit Jesus and his teaching at every turn. So Jesus walks in and is like, huh, can I help you? What's happening here? And they're all just like, boom, jaws hit the floor. I don't want any part of this. And they haven't said anything. And it takes someone from the crowd speaking up to advance the narrative. So just notice that it's kind of a showstopper when Jesus shows up for them. Why? I mean, different reasons for everybody, right? So the scribes were speechless probably because, you know, they probably enjoyed debating a lot more with these nine people than they did with Jesus. Like one Jesus is not really a thing that you want to take on compared to nine disciples without Jesus. And so they were just kind of like mitigating the damage by not saying anything else. And then you have the disciples. They don't speak up either. Maybe just because there's been a sense of disappointment. They thought a certain thing would happen. They thought they had access to the power of Jesus they'd seen over and over and over as they walked with him, as they ate filet of fish with him, as they camped out every night and they got to know each other better than they knew anybody else. Things were hollow and they didn't know why. And they were probably confused and a little disappointed. Maybe the beginnings of doubt were starting to creep in. I left everything for this guy. I've seen this happen over and over. I gave my life to this and it's not working out. So maybe they weren't even making the words yet, but maybe the beginnings of uncertainty or at least disappointment began to creep in. So Jesus shows up and they're kind of back on their heels. But one guy does speak up from the crowd though, which leads us to a real, really like one of the main characters in this story. So let's continue with the dad. Verse 17. So this man is at the center of what they're arguing about. And this man is a beautiful example that God can use weak faith. And God loves to use weak faith because it shows so much glory to him. 
He's a man that desperately needs help from Jesus to heal his son. So let's read that. Verse 17. Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. So this man is in a desperate position. This man needs something that he can't get by himself, and a thing that he asked the disciples for, and has been deeply disappointed. This man has some faith in Christ, which we're going to explore. He has some measure of faith in Christ, in his person and in the power of Christ. And he comes in a really reverent and humble way. The Gospel of Matthew even says he falls on his knees as he's saying this. He's so overwhelmed with the situation. And he's so reverent toward the Lord in the middle of it. Matthew also says that he's shouting this stuff at the Lord. It's probably noisy there. There's probably like lots of confusion and commotion going on. But there's also like a great burden on his heart that's just popping out of his mouth. He can't help it. It's just the only thing he can feel and the only thing he can think about. So let's turn our attention to the boy and let's see what's really going on here because this is dramatic stuff. This is spiritual warfare kind of stuff. This is life and death kind of stuff. And this is a father with his heart broken, helpless to, to get his kid out of this. So verse 17, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And just imagine this scene. It's painful. It's tough. The Bible's not pulling punches here, but imagine what is happening to this boy because of the power of demonic activity. Verse 18, whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and he planks. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they weren't able. Literally trauma happening in the midst of this passage because of the power of Satan and his demonic forces. So demons, they're spirit beings and they have the ability to take up residents and people. So that's what's happening here. There's this demonic spirit and this demonic spirit has inhabited this boy. And because the devil wants to undo the works of God, the devil wants to destroy creation. The devil wants to steal and to kill. The devil wants to unwind and cause as much brokenness as possible. So the demons follow. And when they inhabit the boy, they do what's in their character, and they begin to unravel the goodness of God. And they begin to have intense suffering manifest in any way that they can. So the demon caused this boy, at the end of verse 17, to be mute. Not only mute, we find out he was deaf, too. We find that later in the story. So this little boy couldn't hear, he couldn't speak, and we know that it had to do with demonic control. It wasn't necessarily just a physiological thing. It's evident in the text that demons had imposed brokenness on this boy. The demon just had so much power over him. It may also, just because of compounding brokenness, maybe some of this physical stuff had to do with brain damage that had happened because 
The boy had just been thrown and thrown and thrown. Um, Verse 18, it says, whenever it seizes him. So the demon is literally seizing him, periodically producing this power over the boy. It makes him scream out and then it slams him to the ground. Concussion after concussion after concussion to a school-aged kid, literally traumatizing him as he foams at the mouth. Demons have great power over our bodies. The devil works great brokenness in creation. Today, right now, in our own families, in our own lives, the devil is stealing, killing, and destroying. And we see such a dramatic picture of that here. They can do this kind of stuff. Do we believe that this kind of thing is is something that the devil and his demons actually work in the world to oppose the Lord. It says in Hebrews 2 that Satan is even given the power of death. But all of this happens within the sphere of God's sovereignty. All of this somehow in his wisdom in mysterious ways that we don't understand happens with his sovereign permission. Somehow God is working all of this together for good, even though the devil is stealing, killing, destroying, wreaking brokenness everywhere. It's heartbreaking stuff. And here the dad brings his son to Jesus and the disciples, likely because he'd heard of other times that they'd given some relief, that they brought real healing to people with real issues. And not just like momentary, like, take this one course of a prescription kind of issues like chronic life-altering stuff. And he'd heard that other people had gotten just life-changing relief. So he comes with his heart full of hope to this place, knowing nothing else can happen. He can't do anything else for his own son. And here he is standing in the midst of disappointment. He brought all of it, put it all out there. And it just seems like it just, It didn't happen. Maybe this wasn't the real deal. What's the next step after that? So he brought his own son in faith and the disciples tried and they couldn't. But why couldn't they cast out the demon? So here's where Jesus steps in and we see the redemption start to take place because Jesus's goal in these miracles is to foretell the fact that he's taking all of this and redeeming this broken creation. So he's going to paint a little picture here of how creation is being redeemed when he steps in. When he steps into this broken situation in a fallen world with failure on top of the brokenness. When he steps in, it all changes. But why was the failure happening? Why wasn't the power of God being poured out on this poor boy that needed it? Verse 19. Jesus answered them, Oh, faithless generation. That's the one. That's the underline. That's the main, that's the heartbeat right here. That's why it's not happening. That's the bottleneck. Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Just bring him to me. So Jesus identifies with exasperation, tiredness, brokenness, that the root cause of this failure is that they had a lack of faith. So what was the difference between this time and the other times that we've seen in this study 
demons being cast out. What was the one difference this time? Always before, where was Jesus? Right there, in the middle of all of it. Even when the disciples were speaking in faith and powerful things were happening, Jesus was right there. And today, not the case. Now when he's gone, it's evident that they're struggling to believe. So they'd better learn how to believe because it's only going to be a couple months chronologically before Jesus goes to the cross to die for our sins and ascends to heaven and leaves the kingdom uh, with the help of the Spirit to these Christians saying, I'm not here anymore, but I'll send the comforter. You're to do my will now by trusting in what I've said. And he knows how hard that's going to be for them. The Lord knows how hard it's going to be for all of us whenever we don't have the Lord and Savior right here, when we have to trust the book. He knows that that's impossible apart from the Spirit. And he knows it's going to take a lot of love and care and preparation. So he's beginning that work right now with the disciples. So they better learn how to believe because they're going to need it. And so do we. Amen? Amen. So number one, we see a bunch of people here the disciples, the dad, the son, all like acutely helpless without Jesus. You ever felt helpless before? Isn't that a terrible feeling? To just not even have like a wish, like you're out on a boat in the middle of the ocean and the motor doesn't work. Like what's gonna be my next step? That actually happened to me one time. You should ask me about that. It's a crazy story. But helplessness without Jesus is a terrible place to be. And we see that in this passage and we can sense it in our own hearts. Apart from God, we're dead in our trespasses and our sins. We were lost, we were orphans because of the fall. And unless he chose to make us alive and adopt us, the only thing we'd be good at is being dead, right? So we really are in the same boat spiritually, uh, helpless without Jesus. So that's the first point. Number two, we're gonna see power displayed in weakness. Let's see how Jesus engages this situation with power, but with gentleness and with compassion, just perfectly balancing all of those things. Verse 20, they brought the boy to him and when the spirit saw him, immediately the demon convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast the boy into fire and into water with the intent to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. All right, so verse 21, let's notice, before we really go into the actual actions of what's happening, notice one thing about the way that Jesus approaches this man that shows so much about who God is and how he relates to us. Verse 21 says, Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? Isn't that a little weird? Doesn't Jesus know everything? Like, why is Jesus ever asking information questions in the first place? Isn't it just kind of like, can't we just skip that step? Don't we already, isn't that kind of redundant? Like, if he already has the information, why would he be asking the question of the man? It's such a beautiful thing when, when you can see it here. He asked this question of this man 
because he wanted to hear that guy's pain. He wanted to give that man a chance to rehearse the suffering that he had experienced. He wanted to connect with him and, and to hear him out and to be, in some sense, the first step of healing the wound that had occurred for this caring father. He wanted to move toward him first in compassion. And that's what our Lord does for us. He doesn't, he doesn't, we have such a conception of him as, as a dissatisfied father, of the guy that just, nothing is ever good enough. Like in Despicable Me, when grew and his mom, and he's always inventing, he's always doing something better, and she's like, eh. We think God is like that. Never satisfied with the best that we can do. And hopefully one day, maybe a little. That's so opposite of how the Lord relates to us. He moves toward us first. He wants to hear our pain. He wants us to rehearse it with him. Even though he already knows, even more deeply than we can sense what we're going through. He wants us to bring it to him because he knows the healing that can take place in our hearts. He cares about your suffering. He cares about the struggle with your child, just like he cares about this man's child and this father's experience. 1 Peter 5.7 says that in Christ, we can cast all our cares upon Jesus because we know that he cares for us. Jesus is ready and waiting to receive our brokenness, to receive our pain, to receive the burdens and the struggles that we try to handle on our own, but come up short. We can cast our cares on him. And you may think cast like a, like a fishing line, like you're going to reel it back in, but it's more of a release toward the Lord. Can we re- He's inviting us to release our burdens toward him. And this sort of prompting from Jesus causes that father to open up. So the father says two things. He makes two requests to Jesus. And um, it's really beneficial for us to see what's going on there. So two requests. The first one is have compassion. So verse 22, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Those are the two things he wants from the Lord in this desperate moment. The first one is, Jesus, if you can do anything, have some compassion on us. That word literally in the original language means feel something in your gut for our pain. Would you stop and, and would, you, would you have a sense of the weight of what we've been carrying? This verb is also used in Matthew chapter 9 uh, when Jesus weeps as he looks out over a crowd of people. The text says, that Jesus is moved with compassion. Same verb here, deep down in his gut. It wasn't just like, oh, sad emoji. It was like doubled over, like actually like feeling pain, can't think about anything else. Um, Jesus moved with compassion for the crowds because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so this man says, would you have compassion on us? Our burden is so heavy. And then the second thing he says, would you help us? A lot tied up in those four letters there. Help. Would you help us? Would you give me some assistance? Help is such a hard thing to ask for or to even realize 
that you need. We're not wired to think about help. We're wired to be independent. Independence Day. Woohoo! We can do it. We have the technology. We are self-sufficient, bootstrap kind of people. It's hard to say help, isn't it? And this word help here from the man is a really strong, emphatic kind of word, not used very much, strong language here, and it literally means to run to the aid of someone who needs help, like a lifeguard. Get off your phone. Somebody is drowning. It doesn't matter what's in your pockets. Dive in and get this person because they may not survive unless you drop everything and run to their aid. And this verb is saying, Jesus, this is such a make or break moment for my family that I need you to drop everything and run to the aid of my son. I don't know that his body can take this much more. Literally, run to my aid. I need you. So two requests here. But notice the nature of the request. If we're diagramming the sentence, notice the first part of the sentence here in verse 22. But if you can do anything. This is a man that has a lot of reasons not to be very confident. And he approaches the Lord with a really small amount of confidence. This man's being honest before Jesus in the moment. He had struggled for so long, and he had just now, today, in that moment, been disappointed by the representatives of Jesus in this attempt. So it would be understandable that he would approach with probably not a very big amount of faith. And if we're honest, we approach the Lord like that a lot too. The failures and the brokenness of this world, that's the thing shaping the way we view the world. That's the thing we can't get past when we're trying to ask the Lord for something. And so we end up saying statements like, Jesus, if you can do anything, would you help me out? I'm not here to smack you on the hand for saying that. I'm here to show you what Jesus does in this man's life, which is lovingly correct him. Charles Spurgeon says it and everything else much better than I do. He says that this man's if in the sentence was in the wrong place. Listen to this. I think I took the these and nows out. Now, there was an if in this man's question, but the poor trembling father had put the if in the wrong place. Jesus Christ, therefore, without commanding him to retract the if, Jesus kindly just puts it in the right spot. The Lord said to him, there should be no if about my power, no if concerning my willingness. And the if lies somewhere in between. And we, like this man, often see that there is an if somewhere, but we are perpetually blundering too. If Jesus can help me, if Jesus can give me the grace to overcome that temptation again, if he can give me pardon for my sins, if he can actually help me to be obedient, if he can help me over this grief, Jesus says, if you can believe, it'll be well. The if was in the wrong spot. He responds to this man, verse 23, kind of like incredulously, honestly, and so sometimes we put a super reverent spin on the scriptures, but he's like, if, what? Jesus said, if you can, 
all things are impossible for one who believes. So he, he, he's kind of like su- surprised in a sense, in a human sense. Um, but then he just kindly says, you just got to believe. You, you can access my power through faith. His if was in the wrong place. So how do we handle tough times when Jesus isn't physically present? Just going to keep asking. We handle it by placing our trust in the one who promised in Psalm 46 to be our refuge and our strength, our very present help in time of need. But it's not easy, right? Look at the Father's reaction to what Jesus says. Okay, so you've got, if you can help, I desperately need it. And then you have Jesus saying, if all things are possible to those who believe. And then verse 24, immediately the father of the child cried out. And here's the thing. He says two things, contradictory sounding things. But if you're real, you know it's true. I believe, help my unbelief. At the same time, I believe, and I'm full of doubt. Well, that's an honest guy, right? If we were honest with ourselves and our people in our life groups and the people in our deed groups and our husbands and wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, kids, if we were honest on that level spiritually, we'd end up saying something similar to that too. I really do believe in you, God. I really do believe in your power. But I got a lot of doubt, and I admit it. Is where I'm at right now actually enough? Will this actually get the job done? Is this what you're looking for, Jesus? Because this is all I got. The guy just offers it up to him. Look at how he talks about his doubt. He says, help my unbelief. You remember how we just talked about the word help? Literally like, Drop your phone, drop your keys, jump in the pool. You got to get it. It's the same word. And so the same word that he uses out of like extremis for his son, he uses about the doubt in his own heart. That's how strongly he feels about the things that are welling up that maybe he doesn't want to talk about. The things standing in the way for every one of us. He says, Lord, you have got to drop everything and help me keep believing or I'm not going to make it. So honest, this man. This man knew his faith wasn't perfect and he was honest about it and the disciples could have been saying the same thing. So often we find ourselves in the same boat as this man, right? And if we're going to walk in step with the gospel, if we're going to preach the gospel to the people in our groups, and in our homes, if we're going to be loving members that are united around this covenant and helping us grow into the image of God, we got to figure out how do we talk about this stuff? How do we get past the surface? And how do we help with what's actually going on in our hearts? So three points here about why don't we talk about our doubts and our lack of faith? And if you're feeling awkward, it's because I love you. This is stuff we got to talk about. So why don't we talk about our doubts? Number one, it's uncomfortable. To talk about your doubts is to admit to people that you are struggling 
with something you don't feel like you're allowed to struggle with. You might wonder if people are going to look down on you if you say it out loud. Or you might wonder if I tell this person, are they actually going to hold it in confidence? Am I going to get called out in some group setting? Is it going to make this whole thing go into a tailspin? Am I allowed to struggle right now? Number one, it's uncomfortable. And I acknowledge, and, and our church, I hope that our church can acknowledge that talking about things like this, it's extremely sensitive and it requires a ton of trust to ever get into. Because doubts about our faith can so easily just lie at the heart of who we say we are as a person. If I find myself doubting any portion of this book, all of a sudden, I don't even know who I am anymore. So to let somebody into that spot in our lives requires such an extreme level of trust that it hardly ever happens. But that's no excuse. We've got to dig in here. We've got to get this done. So it is uncomfortable. Number two, why don't we talk about doubts? Because we think we got it handled. Because this is such a sensitive thing, it's natural to have this response like, thanks, I'm good. How's my life? How's my walk going? Oh, great, brother. I'm blessed. Don't worry about my marriage. Like raging inferno. Don't worry about my quiet time that hasn't happened in eight months. Explosion in the background. Like, I'm fine. That's what I'm supposed to say. Are we good? Do you want to go get coffee? Let's move on. It's uncomfortable. And you want to just keep it in. And you say, I've got this. Let me tell you two things. Number one, from my own experience, I'm not speaking out of the word of God here, but it's really difficult, I've found in my own experience, to handle doubts on your own. It's so hard to, to know what seems important and what doesn't seem important and, you know, what sources and everything just gets so foggy, and you did in your own head, and all of a sudden you have no perspective. Um, and so it's really difficult to figure out like a baseline when you're on your own. And number two, you don't have to handle it on your own. It might feel like you have no other option but to just figure this out and Google your way out of this like foundational thing. But in this place, and with these people, you don't have to walk by yourself. We're all in process here. We all have struggles, and the Lord is growing us at different rates in different areas, and God is knitting us together in this church to be able to help each other and to walk with each other, even when it feels unmentionable, the thing that you're going through. So you don't have to handle it on your own. And here's a third one, just because, you know, you really can't. I mean, if we're being honest, I mean, you might think you're doing like a solid C minus on this, but this is like a big deal. Like, and if we're all honest with ourselves, we really can't do this on our own. And we really wish that we had somebody to connect with and to walk with. So if you're looking for that, oh my gosh, like know that this is something you just have to drop everything and run toward. There's such an urgency to this. So why don't we talk about our doubts? Number three, we think God will love us less. 
if we talk about it. Deep down, our hearts still want to earn our way to God. And even if we've been a Christian for decades, we just default into this, I'm climbing the mountain and I'm going to get to God eventually once all my good works stack up on one another. We feel like he expects perfection out of us. So that leads us to not talk about struggles that we have. Much less say a sentence like, Lord, if you don't help me with this, I'm never going to get over it. It's this legalistic, works-based mentality that we can harbor that's going to keep us from ever knowing the Lord with the power that he intends. In reality, help my unbelief is exactly where God wants us. He wants us to be honest about how much we need him, and he wants us to just throw our hands up and ask for help. You know why? Because he gets all the glory. There's no mixture of our creativeness and intelligence and stature and lineage and whatever. Like, there, there's no other excuse. And, and you can really say with the psalmist in Psalm chapter 34, this poor man cried, me, cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of his distress. God got all the credit in those verses. And God wants all the credit as we struggle too. He wants us to be in a place where we just throw up our hands and say, Lord, I need you. And God blesses the weak and wavering and imperfect faith of this man right here. Why would God bless something that's weak and that seems like it's about to fall over? Why is weak faith enough for God? Doesn't that seem counterintuitive? So let me help you reframe the question. Because I can say, I don't know why God would accept the sort of weak faith that I have. But we need to think about it a different way. Tim Keller says it this way. It is not the strength of your faith, but the object of your faith that actually saves you. Strong faith in a weak branch is fatally inferior to weak faith in a strong branch. And all the cats stuck in trees said, amen, right? <laughs> like, it's the strength of the branch. It doesn't matter how much you believe in a structural integrity. Like, call an engineer. Like, what actually is solid? And if we place what little faith God's given us in a rock-solid foundation, we're going to be good to go. So that's where we're going to close today. Point number three. It's not about strength, but it is about the source of our faith. And so as we close, I want to, like, give you the main point again, but I want to kind of, like, tailor it a little bit now that we've seen the drama that's unfolded here. So now I want to say the main point like this. God blesses our weak faith because it's rooted in Jesus. So not only does weak faith hold up when it's rooted in Jesus, it's not coincidental. God blesses our weak faith because it's rooted in the firm foundation of Jesus. So let's speed toward the end of this passage and see how we can respond. Verse 25, Jesus is showing his authority over the demon. And when Jesus saw a crowd, he saw that they're coming together. He rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was still like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. Not a lot of time left here, but I just want to put it out there that 
the brokenness of this world and the fallenness of our own hearts um, can sometimes be so damaging that we wonder if us or our loved ones are even going to make it. And in those moments, the sort of grief that we feel and the sort of heaviness that we feel needs to, to drive us to mourn the fact that sin exists and drive us toward the Lord for help that we can't get anywhere else. It's not good enough to just say, yeah, sometimes people are uncomfortable. The world is incredibly broken. And sometimes it brings us within an inch of our lives, like this boy. And here's the lesson for the disciples. After they see all of this, Jesus takes them off to the side and instills the point in them. Verse 28, when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So here's my interpretation of this. And I believe that this is what the text is getting at. And I'm willing to talk to you about it because it's, people, people debate the meaning of this. But verse 29 here doesn't necessarily mean that this is a special kind of demon that takes a different technique to be driven out. So when it says this kind here, um, there's a word, kind of sounds like species, and it, and, it's, and it could be pointing to the fact that like all demons cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Um, John MacArthur says that Jesus is showing that demons need to be cast out by God's power. And how do you access God's power? Through prayer. So he's giving them a roadmap toward casting out the demons. He's giving us a roadmap toward insurmountable things in our lives. He's giving us a roadmap toward accessing God's power when we need it most. And we can't just put up a front anymore. We actually need help. So this is how John MacArthur puts it. Faith is the power of God and it's accessed by the highway of prayer. I think that's a great place to land the plane this morning because it's, it's easy to just stop and say, have faith. Things will look up. And you go, okay, great. That sounds really good. Do you want to actually like help me have faith? And Jesus is kind enough in this moment to show us like an on-ramp onto the faith highway. Faith is the power of God that's accessed by the highway of prayer. So how do we respond? Number one, Two very quick things. Let's remember who we are in Christ. The disciples found themselves in the absence of Jesus, just imitating his actions and not relying on him for power and not trusting in him. How often do we find ourselves just trying to imitate the morality of Jesus to reproduce some physical Christian looking thing and not really trusting him for the power? We don't need to just try harder to act like Jesus. The situation is too desperate for that. There are things in our lives that we know right now can only be responded to by saying, stop what you're doing and run to my aid, Lord. And our ability to get out of the situation and talk our way out of the situation and make it seem more manageable, it's only contributing to legalism and being distant from the Lord. So remember, your identity is not in how good you're measuring up. Your identity is in the fact that you are a son or a daughter 
of the king, that just to sit at his feet and to strengthen his teaching and be close to him. So number one, remember who you are in Christ. If you're struggling, it doesn't mean you're less valuable. Your value's not rooted in how good you're doing right now. Number two, trust him through prayer. This is where we're gonna close. So really the answer to how we respond to these challenging situations is the same way that Peter should have responded last week on the Mount of Transfiguration. In the mountain and in the valley, the response is the same. Stop trying to do things and look to Jesus. We need to worship Jesus for who he is in all of his glory. Last week we saw Peter and it said, Peter was beholding the glory of God in the face of Christ. And that sort of mindset is what's gonna drive us to holiness. So let's practice trusting God together through something that I like to do sometimes, just, it's just listening to a psalm and just allowing it to wash over you and, and to prayerfully ingest some scripture. So let's close our eyes and let's allow the words of this psalm, Psalm chapter 121, help us release the areas in our lives that we struggle with the Lord and we struggle to follow the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let my foot be moved and he who keeps me will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Let's pray. God, we come to you this morning completely honest about the fact that apart from you, we can do nothing. And apart from you, the issues that we experience in our lives and the struggles that we experience are not just inconvenient, they're potentially fatal. And we ask that you just help us to have a heart that doesn't settle for looking good, but just says, Lord, would you run to my aid? Lord, would you help me with this thing that I don't even understand and maybe even don't know how to talk about because I've never tried. Lord, I know you accept me in the middle of being imperfect. Lord, I know that you died for me and my sins. So I'm able to face this difficult thing knowing that my performance isn't gonna make or break me. God, we trust that you're faithful and that your faithfulness is great and that in these moments where we face challenges, we don't, have to, we don't have to fall back on our own abilities. Help us to look to you in everything. And we pray this in your name. Amen.